Before we get to today's show, I want to remind you, you should all be downloading and subscribing to Baseball Tonight with Buster Olney, because baseball's back, and so are your favorite teams and players. Catch the best of the bigs all season on ESPN Plus with over 170 live MLB games featuring every star and every team in the league. Sign up now at ESPNPlus.com baseball. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Kelly Carter, and my dilemma is that I want more than one person to win at least two categories at this year's Academy Awards. So, you know, I was going to say that there's no chance that happens. There's no ties in the Oscars, but I hadn't done any research. And now that I have, it is not common, but it has happened six times. I don't remember this ever, but first of all, before I was born, 1969, Barbara Streisand and Katherine Hepburn famously tied. And then most recently... Back in 2013, Zero Dark Thirty and Skyfall tied for best sound editing, which I definitely watched that one, but I didn't remember the tie. So I can't exactly fix your dilemma, but I can provide you with a little bit of hope. And this year has been so weird that I think a couple rare Oscar ties thrown in just kind of feels right. Fingers crossed. That's what she said. One of my favorite days of the year is usually the Sunday that the NFL wildcard games and Golden Globes share. In the past, it's been this super lazy day on the couch. Starts with playoff football, then the red carpet pre-shows, the awards, lots of takeout Chinese food. Just the ideal lazy day with football and pretty dresses. And I didn't get that day this year because uh, when the Oscars pushed back their ceremony to the end of this month, the Globes got pushed back to the original Oscars date in late February, and there was no crossover. And then now with the Oscars and COVID still around, I can't throw a party. And I can't have cute, clever, nominated film-themed foods like I used to have with little little labels and clever names. And no bingo boards or prediction prizes, no red carpet leading to the TV room, no request for my friends to wear gala wear to my house. One year, I actually did all of that, and a friend of a friend came to the party and later left a Polaroid of himself in a tux with a monkey mask on, covering his whole head, and an invite to a restaurant down the street on a date, but left it outside my door, no name on it. And it wasn't until later that I found out it was that guy, because a mutual friend kind of recognized the monkey mask on MySpace, where I posted it, by the way, um, and pointed out that this fella had recently split with the date he had brought to my party. Um, and I later spotted him on an episode of Bravo's uh, Million Dollar Listings. <laughs> totally unrelated. It's a strange story. Uh, many of my L.A. stories are. Couldn't make the dinner, by the way. I had other plans. And then I never followed up to reschedule. Um, I think I did reach out to tell him I it was not interested, but it was a very creative way. In fact, the most creative way I think anyone's ever asked me out. And certainly the only time anyone's ever asked me out anonymously. So I, I let him down easy. Uh, anyway, no party this year. Um, and like the Super Bowl, my best guess is it will be me and the dogs and my husband on the couch. Far too much food for two people. Uh, he'll fall asleep, my husband, that is, uh, before we're an hour into the show. Um, but I'm still excited for it. Um, I'm really missing the gowns and the glamour. And we'll actually get to see it in person instead of people sort of oddly sitting super dolled up in a hotel room. Um and a lot of people have actually seen most of the movies this year because they were available to us. So I thought to get us prepped for the big day and to discuss her kind of view from her perspective of how Hollywood has dealt with the pandemic, um, talk about her new Oscars podcast. Uh, we've got Kelly Carter from The Undefeated joining the show again. If you didn't hear her last time, she's a senior entertainment writer for The Undefeated. She also has a digital series there called Another Act with Kelly Carter a special commentator on the Oscars Countdown, the Red Carpet Live show on ABC. And like I said, one of the co-hosts of the new ABC News podcast, Inside the Oscars. So here's my conversation with Kelly. That's what she said. 
So happy to welcome back Kelly Carter to the podcast. You can scroll back a couple years and find it or use the old Google machine to the first time we talked. We'll recap a little bit of who she is and how she got here before we get into the good stuff, which is an Oscars podcast, getting ready for the red carpet, and her new stuff that she's involved in at The Undefeated, which includes another act, uh, which is is pretty recent. So we'll get into all the stuff um, that we didn't hit last time. But first, Kelly, let's go back to the beginning and remind everybody, you grew up in Detroit. You went to Michigan State, uh, journalism there, um, and in fact, have still never had a, a, a job in life outside of journalism, right? No, unless babysitting counts. I was a master babysitter for a while, <laughs> but but the government doesn't know that. So the That's only true. job I've actually had, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it in, in tax season, we're in the thick of it, is, is a journalist. Yeah. Yeah. We don't have to include all the things we've been paid for, uh, just the ones <laughs> that we paid taxes on. And don't read into that weirdos. I didn't, I sounded weird. That's not how I meant it. Uh, but <laughs> take it how you will, I guess. Um, so you end up in a bunch of places, Detroit Free Press, Chicago Tribune, USA Today, doing a lot of freelance stuff. And, you know, I didn't ask you this last time, but I'm curious, was USA Today the first job where they offered up on camera reporting versus straight written? No, you know what? That was a straight written job, but I started doing some on camera stuff as an extension of being at USA Today. Like I did a lot of E! True Hollywood stories. From Chris Farley to Britney Spears and, of course, the Kardashians and Charlie Sheen. Like, I was doing, like, a lot of these uh, kind of celebrity meltdown True Hollywood stories, too, uh, at the time. And so I started doing a lot of things like that for, you know, for USA Today while I was there. But that was strictly print. And then, you know, the TV stuff uh, came uh, as a result of being in this world of celebrity in Los Angeles. So if you're being totally honest with yourself and with us, and you look back at some of those true Hollywood stories using today's mindset, d- does it bring anything up the way that we all sort of reconciled with ourselves with the new Britney documentary and realized sort of the cruelty or the way we we were reveled in in scandals that were either mental health related or just truly sad or just the results of fame. And and we were cruel to people about how that manifested itself in ways that I think were mostly based in jealousy and not not any any humanity. Yeah, I mean, I think we've learned how to talk about those things a little bit better, because at this point, we're talking 10 years ago, in some cases, for some of those true Hollywood stories, or maybe even a little bit longer. And I remember for the Britney one in particular, this would have been, you know, post the head shaving and and kind of the height of the paparazziness of it all. And one of the things that I said kept getting looped and looped and looped over and over again. And I'm so glad I didn't say anything that would have embarrassed me years later. But it was really that you know, we were all in the audience of watching what this was happening. And something that we didn't necessarily talk about as reporters to people who weren't reporters is that there are some people that we already have prepped obituaries for. And Brittany was one of those people, you know, but we didn't didn't necessarily walk around saying like, hey, for this 15 year old or this 38 year old or this, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of able-bodied human being, we, we we have an obituary prepped. But Britney Spears, uh, especially at at the height of kind of all that she was going through, yeah, I think the AP, you know, had had mentioned like, you know, we we had this prepped. And so that was one of the things that I was talking to on that. But thankfully, you know, didn't say anything that feels dated and insensitive years later, now that we're armed with better language to talk about some of those. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I certainly wouldn't be able to say the same about some of the ways I viewed that stuff and didn't really have the tools yet to understand what we were taking in and how we were making it worse to just by, by virtue of either, you know, buying us weeklies or or talking about it the way we did. Um, So you end up uh, doing a bunch of that stuff and you join the undefeated um, after Buzzfeed. So you're Buzzfeed, a senior editor in in entertainment for a number of years and, and Ebony, Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been all over the place, but I undefeated and ESPN <laughs> starts in 2016. And, you know, you, I remember last time we talked about how often you didn't feel required for things to be sports adjacent. The E and ESPN is in fact entertainment. Um, over the, over the course of now, it's been, you know, four or five years since you, since you settled in with the undefeated. Do you feel like your role has changed significantly or even your approach to what you do? Significantly. I almost never look for a sports connection now. You know, when I first got here, to me, that was the thing. You know, I was always trying to hit all of the intersections, sports, race, and culture. And now sports isn't necessarily um, part of that conversation. It is in in certain ways. You know, you think about 
what guys like LeBron James, you know, are doing in, in Hollywood or Steph Curry, um, Kyrie Irving. And, and those things are certainly of interest when they come up and they're part of it. And, and look, for the last three years in a row, there is an athlete that has been nominated for an Oscar and, and a big athlete, you know, at that matter, um, in, in some cases, has been nominated for an Oscar. And so to me, that's just like, you know, kind of a further solidifying thing that I should be here paying attention to those things for ESPN. But I don't often look for the sports connection. Sometimes it manifests itself in really natural ways, but most times I thankfully don't have to do that. (laughs) Yeah, it feels so much less rigid in general across just media. We used to worry so much about fitting things in boxes and it it does still matter for a certain brands or websites or channels or anything else to not stray too far from their focus. Um, People want to get what they're expecting. But I think in the case of ESPN with The Undefeated, with ESPNW, with a lot of these sort of quote unquote affiliate sites, if the content is good and the audience is an audience that's going to appreciate it, it feels like there's less of like needing to to reach for that, which which is great, especially for people who are interested in in stuff that isn't just straight, you know, X's and O's. Um, so you're at the undefeated um, doing a lot of written stuff and you end up creating this digital series that started um, just before the pandemic last year. Uh, so did your plans for another act with Kelly Carter, uh, which is interviews with with great, you know, big stars, did the plans change because of the pandemic or was there and was it always potentially going to be, you know, uh, virtual interviews, not in person? Oh, the plans changed significantly. So we we tested it out um, kind of the end of, uh, of what year would that have been, 2019, <laughs> uh, yeah. of what something like this could look like. And we had this opportunity to go to Mexico and sit down with Kevin Hart and Dwayne Johnson. You've heard of those guys before. Yeah, a couple times. And, <laughs> and uh, so it's kind of fun to be able to test out what, you know, a show would look like. And I think the thought was that it would be, you know, in person, we didn't know what the frequency would be like, but we wanted to at least get it on tape, see what it would look like, and then kind of test the market out a little bit. And then kind of enter the the award season, as I like to say, because not only do you have the Hollywood award season, but you also have the sports world, you know, world kind of culminating at the same time with Super Bowl and NBA All-Star Weekend and all those things. And then in Sundance, and then when the pandemic happened, of course, I always tell people that I knew it was real when Broadway turned its lights off and when the NBA and college basketball, you know, ceased to to stop. So there was no sports, but entertainment, of course, was still chugging right along because entertainment works well in advance. And so, you know, my bosses came to to me and said, let's create a couple of shows. We want you to create a digital show. You know, if we're going to be stuck at home for a few weeks, which LOL, that's very funny uh-huh, now. Right. Um, but if we're going to be stuck at home for a few weeks, let's at least put some content out there. And I said, great, let's do it because there is a lot of really great entertainment and that's all people can do, especially when you think about when schools were saying things like we're going to be shut down for three weeks. So parents had to be teachers, quote unquote, for three weeks. A lot of times that meant putting their kids in front Mm -hmm. of Trolls World Tour, you know, on pay-per-view eight times, you know, in a row. And so, you know, I reached out to some people. I made a list of who I thought we could get. And even I was really overwhelmed by the people who said yes. And they were like, sure, let's do it via this thing called Zoom. Why not? And Don Cheadle was the first person who said yes. And because Don is so revered, at least my opinion, that because Don is so revered in this town and such an important voice and such an important actor that so many other people signed on and said, oh, yes. And then it just kept growing and growing to where it is now. And it is still wild to me when I think about it. Yeah, I love that. I mean, the couple people that I've gotten for this podcast that are like the kind of name that don't do a ton of things and that everybody recognizes, once I throw them in that email, when I pitch to future amazing people, I feel so much more sure that like at least they'll give me a shot and they'll check it out. Um, So, And I also think in a lot of ways, especially early pandemic was a great time to hit up a bunch of folks who thought that, you know, I'm just going to kill this month and then we'll get back to it. A lot of people didn't fill it with things. A lot of people just had all of these things planned that got erased. So they had a wide open calendar and you saw like whether it was the concerts that people did virtually or Mm -hmm. interviews or, you know, 
Rita Wilson was going back and forth with me on IG live rapping. I mean, it was like they had nothing to do. Okay. They had nothing right. to do. It was a right. good time actually to start, maybe not for the you know, aesthetics of the show, but in practice to be able to get a whole lot of captive folks that, that wanted to talk to you, which is great. What do you think makes it different? Cause obviously there are a ton of interview shows. You've been in the business a long time. You have access to a lot of stars. You know, a lot of folks from the work you've done before. So you, you can get them, which is a start. But mm-hmm. why is it different or why is it maybe specific to the undefeated if it is at all? Yeah, you know, I think that the undefeated provides a comfortable couch for talent to come in and sit down and talk. And that feels unique um, from other spaces because a lot of times there is no connection with reporters and and um, and interview subjects. But I think, you know, not not just myself, but you look at guys like, you know, Jason Reed and Mark Spears, they also have had a number of years in the business covering NFL and and the NBA. And so they have relationships that are off the court and off the field with talent. And I have those same types of relationships with people, but in the world of Hollywood. And so I'm able to translate what I normally was doing for so many years via print. But, you know, in this, in this digital series now, so that's different, but also, you know, one thing that I think changed is initially when we were doing the show, it was, oh my God, how are you fighting boredom being at home? And it went from being a very kind of fun, fun and funny place to talk about that. But then when people started losing their jobs, Mm. there was a shift. So, you know, Hollywood was one of those industries that started trying to figure out ways to provide work or money or resources for like wait staff, you know, things like that. So then the conversation would shift that way. And then once it was realized the the health disparities culturally and that black and brown people were were affected in greater numbers of of COVID-19, then that became something that was, and that's when I got Oprah, you know, she was like, hey, if you want to talk, I'm going to give $14 million to these communities. And I was like, I do, I do, (laughs) do. let's have that conversation, (laughs) you know, And, and then, and then right after that, you have George Floyd's murder and Mm. then the activation that was inspired you know, beyond that. So then you have people who are uncomfortable coming to have a conversation with me about this new romantic comedy that's hitting Netflix. They they can talk about that, but it feels, and I heard this from a number of people that it felt very tone deaf to do that. And instead their preference was to have a very real conversation, similar to what we see happening in the sports. We're not going to just shut yeah. up and dribble. We're not just going to shut up and act. If I'm Jamie Foxx, I'm going to be on the front lines leading protest marches. I'm going to be at George Floyd's funeral. And so we started having those kinds of conversations and that changed everything. I don't know when the last time I had a straight entertainment conversation with someone on my show. Every conversation I have is really about what's happening in the world right now. And it's very topical. And yes, it's coming from people who you know are some of the world's most famous people but they're also saying that I have something important to say beyond the world that first made me famous. Yeah, it's such an interesting... We talked actually specifically about Oprah as a country early in the pandemic. We were like, this is the thing that has finally made us all the same. Because while where we're living is different, you know, with it, with a couple exceptions, most of us are stuck at home and going through this thing together that you can't just buy your way out of or escape the same way many other problems that we face can be... Uh, you know, escaped via just money or power or access. Um, and then I do think it's fascinating to to wonder whether, and I think, I think we overestimate the effects of things like this and our ability to change just same way we've changed in the last year to change back. Everyone's like, hugs are gone forever. No one's going to shake hands. And I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> already happening again. Um, right. And I think the same goes for athletes or actors who do want to get back to just talking about their work. Mm. Plenty of them, though, I think will have had this door opened for them and feel comfortable keeping it open now going forward, which hopefully allows for like deeper and more interesting conversations in addition to the fun stuff that we all kind of have missed over the last year. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
So you're getting ready for the Oscars um, months later than usual, right? So this this Oscars uh, is is going to be April 25th, two months mm-hmm. after the original planned date, uh, because of the effects that COVID nineteen had on on movies and cinema, and, and it allowed for some different um, entries. It allowed for the ways that films have to qualify to be altered, and It'll be really interesting to see how it ends up looking because they've decided to do a fully in-person ceremony. And as much as I'm down for safety, there is a part of me that is sort of grateful that they're going out of their way to safely afford for there to be in-person ceremonies because there was something very sad to me about the idea that someone could get nominated just once and that one experience would just be a Zoom and not getting to really understand what it is to do. And I know that that doesn't take precedence over a pandemic. Nothing does. But the timing, I think, is allowing for it to hopefully be done. Similarly to the way the Grammys, I think, pulled off an incredible, incredible, better than a regular year ceremony. Yeah. Yeah. And Beyonce and Jay-Z showed up for that Grammys. Mm -hmm. Uh, Unlike unlike other ones, you know, in in the past. And I agree with you on that. Like, I'm really excited to see how the Oscars pulls off, you know, this in-person ceremony. But, But also, it was kind of fun, I think watching some of the technical difficulties that happened at some of the other award shows and not just the technical difficulties, but the realness, because like we've said, you know, COVID-19 and the pandemic has kind of been the great equalizer, Mm. you know, amongst all of us and seeing like Jason Sudeikis accept a Golden Globe in a hoodie. I was like, Hey, stars are just like us. You know (laughs) what I mean? Right. Or or seeing like Daniel Kaluuya's, Hey, am I, is my mute button on? Am I on? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Oh, stars also just like us, they have Zoom technical difficulties when they're in meetings, they're on mute and they don't know they're on mute or whatever the case, maybe their internet connections are wonky. And so that's been kind of, even though I'm sure the producers of those shows are probably like, ah, that also has been really fun to watch because it just kind of reminds you once again of the space that we're in. Like if Hollywood is the place you go to to escape the world that you live in, the Hollywood shows that we've seen, independent of the Grammys so far, have reminded us, oh, no, no, in fact, this this nightmare of a world is still happening right now. And you can see it on your living room couch. 100%. And for those who are Jason Sudeikis and Ted Lasso fans, they spoofed that moment of the Golden Globes of him winning in his sweatshirt in the intro to the SAG Awards the other night. And it was so good. You know, the, the, the I think the quote was, you know, who goes to an award show in a hoodie? He's going through some stuff, uh, which was accurate to, to Jason as well. But it was sort of like a mini preview for season two of Ted Lasso. For those of you who are dying and ready for season two, go Google the uh, the intro to the SAG Awards. They, they really nailed it as the whole cast. And, and it was a lot of fun. So not only do you have this, the red carpet live special on ABC on the day of, but you've also got this inside the Oscars podcast with Chris Connolly, Jason Nathanson, Janai Norman, Ginger Z, um, all sorts of folks coming together to do six episodes starting after the nominations in leading up to the show. And then one post show reaction episodes, people could check these out every Thursday. So let's just start with the basics. I'm a sports person. I know how to prep for the Super Bowl or how to prep for a big game. How do you prep for the Oscars? Oh my God. It involves so much screening. And in a lot of cases, going back to revisit, you know, so you have to watch everything um, to really have you know, an idea about what truly is the best of the best of this year. And, and usually in, in years before now, um, some of the films that I think are the best films of the year don't get nominated because the truth is that, and I tell people this all the time, is award season, especially Academy Awards, it's a lot like a political election. It's a campaign. You have to actively campaign, shake hands and kiss babies, or or in the space of this last 12 months, jump into a lot of Zoom chats, you know, and have conversations with a lot of people so that they can, you know, select your film to win. And um I've been doing all of those things. Uh, And I think what happens is that you watch films very early in the season and then you forget about them and then they pick up traction because of that political campaigning. Then you have to go back and revisit them. And then you start doing deeper dives, especially if you're thinking about performances and performers. Like, is, is Viola Davis's performance and Ma Rainey's better than Andrew Day's performance and you know, U.S. versus Billy Holiday. I don't know. Let me go back and revisit both of those things. Let me point out key things and take notes and figure those things out. It's a lot of prognostication, of course, just like in the world of sports. And it's all 
subjective when you really think about it, but all of us think that, you know, we're critics and we know the best. Right, so. right. So, so it's very similar. You just, you watch a lot of game tape, you look at the performances, you decide who's, you know, um, how did you map out how you wanted the episodes to look and, and what you tackled in different weeks? I mean, we wanted to be like super nerdy about it because we felt like if you're looking for a podcast about the Academy Awards, you probably are super nerdy. But also one thing that we talked about, which is very real, is because all of us have had nothing to do for the last 12 months but watch films and television and watch everything streaming. And because films that normally um, don't find its way to a real audience actually found its way to a real audience because people were just scrolling to watch something, everybody's a critic. And this is probably the first year that the majority of an American audience in particular has probably watched a lot of the films before they got nominated. That normally doesn't happen. If you remember, there was this, um, uh, the time that Chris Rock hosted the uh, the Academy Awards where he had a running joke because no one real had seen any of the movies that were up for an Oscar that year, but everyone had seen White Chicks. He went to like the Magic Johnson Theater and yeah. everyone's like, White Chicks, it was a great movie, but White <laughs> Chicks, of course, is not the kind of movie that would get nominated for, for an Oscar. But this is the year that I feel like when the names were called off, a lot of those films that felt familiar to people because they watched it on Netflix, they watched it on Hulu, they watched it on Amazon Prime. So people knew the context. My parents, the last movie they saw in the theater was Black Panther, only because I had talked about it so much and they've never seen any other Marvel movie. But before Black Panther, the last movie that they saw in the theater was Revenge of the Nerds in 1984. <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's be, That's where you got your love of the art. <laughs> That's where I got my love of the arts, right? And so I was when we were talking, I, I said that we were kind of playing out what this podcast would look like. And everyone laughed in agreement because it's true. Like I'm having these critical arguments with my parents about films that I would not like my parents are script doctors all of a sudden because they've done nothing right. but be bored and watch movies. So right. they're like, I don't know if the dialogue, and this is these are real conversations I've had with my parents. I don't know if the dialogue that Sam Cooke said in that one scene in One Night in Miami feels authentic to me because I feel like, and I'm like, you know what? I, I'm going to let you have it. I'm yeah. wrong, but I'm going to let you have it. And so we wanted to make this podcast for people like my parents, in addition to those super nerds that are looking for Academy Awards, but for people who feel like, you know what, I, I actually can participate in the Oscars in a way this year that I've never been able to participate before. And so let me just get a little, a little extra something. Yeah. I always did best in the years when I was technically still a SAG member that got the screeners because it was like this year, they came straight to me and it was easy to just take the DVD and watch it. Cause I'm not a huge movie theater person. So this year I do feel like I have a much better shot of getting them all in because I can just sit at home and grab them all versus um, needing to make the time to go to the theater. We'll get right back to the interview, but first, what is your favorite word? Oh, I feel like I say the word amplify a lot. Amplify or amplified? Amplify. That is a good word. It's from the early 15th century to enlarge, expand, or increase from the old French amplifier. Um, use of the word relating to sounds, like we often think about amplified guitars, amplified music, seems to have come much later around 1915 in reference to radio technology. I often just think of using it for when I sign an Airbnb contract that says no amplified music or parties. Um, but if I actually use it, it's, it's more often in terms of amplifying voices, especially of people who are silenced or marginalized or underrepresented. So amplify, it's a very good word. Speaking of great words. You gonna learn today. The word of the week is sack butt. Okay, I'll give you a minute to imagine what this word means. Sack butt. Yeah guessing you've never heard of it and neither had I and neither had Aaron Rodgers nor any of the contestants on Jeopardy during the Packers quarterback's recent guest hosting efforts a sack butt is a medieval wind instrument and the word uh, from around 1500 was probably from the middle French sacque to pull and boute to push to pull and push sack butt <laughs> sounds better in French sac boot um, but kind of like a, a trumpet, but with a slide like a trombone. Um, and apparently the term trombone actually predates the term sack butt by a couple decades. Um, but for whatever reason, the French term was used in England. And then uh, when the instrument kind of 
became uh, rarely used in the 18th century, and it came back for whatever reason. The Italian term trombone became the dominant one for that kind of instrument. Um, but we still call old trombones or replicas of old trombones sack butts. In a sentence, that loud and brassy sound you heard was Sarah practicing the sack butt. <laughs> By the way, I'm all in for Aaron Rodgers as the permanent host of Jeopardy. I thought he crushed it. And he claims he could do both, that with football, because of the limited tape days for Jeopardy. So I'm here for it, especially if he offers up gems like sack butt. Which clearly, by the number of times I've said it, makes me laugh. Sack butt. Now let's get back to the interview. So you mentioned uh, hosts and previous hosts. There is no host again this year. In recent years, it's felt like that was a job no one wanted. It was not because of the the fame and glamour that came with it, but because there was criticism of how they were making their selections. There was everything that went down with Kevin Hart. Then there was sort of, it's a thankless job that no one really appreciates even when you do well. Have we landed on a, they just prefer it without a host or is it still in that space where they eventually will work their way back to figuring out to make it that, that coveted position that, that stars want? I think eventually they'll make their way back, you know, because there have been, in my estimation, there have been more hits and there have been misses, you know, with when it comes to hosts for the Academy Awards. Like Ellen DeGeneres does a great job. Billy Crystal yeah. did a great job. I used to love Rock, Billy I Crystal. Loved. It was very timeless every time. Every you know? time. Every time. I thought it yeah, was It was so really just well the James done. Franco that really blew it for some people. <laughs> yes, you're right. I mean, I, and I feel like the 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 connective tissue, I guess, now that I'm thinking about it is all of those people are comics or stand-up comics. And I think that's what that's what works best as a as a host for this kind of show because you have to be someone that's unafraid to poke fun of the most powerful and the most mm-hmm. famous people in the world and um and and do it without a ban. And like that year that Chris Rock hosted the Oscars, he kept going in on Jude Law, like, why is Jude Law getting <laughs> all these things? And it was a funny thing because quite frankly, everybody else was thinking it too. And then I think it was um, um, the way I'm going to identify this man who has won an Oscar is so ridiculous. Where you're going to feel me? <laughs> he used to be married to Madonna, and his name just flew right Sean out of my Penn. head. Thank you, Sean Penn. <laughs> Sean Penn gets up on stage. So I'm sorry right? to this man. Sorry to this man. <laughs> Sean Penn gets up on stage and, in accepting an award or whatever, starts off with, "I'll tell you who Jude Law is. Jude Law is an excellent working actor." Blah blah blah. And everyone was like, "Now." Now you made it weird, dude. Yeah, you made it weird. It was a bit. It was, it was a, a weird bit. It was, it was bit. quirky. Yeah. Yeah. Like, let, let him have yeah. it. That's what he's here for. Right. He's here to do those things. You know, Ellen was there to order pizza and take selfies mm-hmm. with everybody famous. Like, this is part of that experience. And I think that we'll get back to that place. But I think they probably just had to reset a little bit. That said, we have no idea what to expect this year because, of course, the year that was. But I, I think that they have some incredible, the only thing that we're expecting is something incredible. We don't know what that is, but we're told it's going to be incredible. Wow, so, okay. I mean, I, like, I'm ready for it. I'm excited. You know? hope, yeah. I hope I don't miss it. <laughs> so I think part of the reason that the hosts also stepped away was the criticism around Oscar so white. And then it was, if you're going to take it away from, from one person, do we want to step in and take on the backlash of that? Um Nothing can be fixed overnight, and certainly there is still a very good reason to criticize the Oscars and most award shows for the makeup of their voters, for the makeup of the nominees, for everything else. But it feels like that moment resulted in serious reflection on on how the show works, and it certainly feels like there's a wide variety of nominees and, and stories being told this year. Do you think that there is still such a magnifying glass on on the show and the awards, or did that moment produce enough meaningful change that now people are willing to be patient and see how that manifests? A couple of things. Um, one thing is that, and I know this is kind of a little difficult to wrap people's heads around because they they think of the the live telecast of the show and the Academy is the same thing. And it's not, you know, so you've had like Reggie Hudlin would have been the producer 
Um, he's a black filmmaker, would have been the producer of the Oscars live telecast in a year that got so much criticism about the lack of diversity, mm. but he doesn't control the nominees. He doesn't control how it comes down, but what he does control are the presenters, the performances, and so on and so forth. So it looked as if once they started announcing, like Kerry Washington's going to present or yeah. Rita Pinto or whatever, that it was the Academy trying to play against the lack of diversity, but it wasn't the Academy. It was the producers who were already working on what the live telecast would look like without knowing, you know, what the nominations would look like. Um, so I, I think we have to kind of be mindful of that. And I know that's difficult because it's so insider baseball, I think for a lot of people, but that's one thing, but I, but also, yes, what does happen, I think, is that the host finds themselves in a position where they have to acknowledge what the nominee base looks like, because that's what we're there for. And in a lot of cases, it's it's been both a serious arc and and one that has been used to make fun of. I think, you know, when you look at the Golden Globes, that's why Tina Fey and Amy Poehler do so well, because they're unafraid and uninhibited to talk about, you know, what's happening. And it's a very similar circumstance, you know, where the where the um, Hollywood Foreign Press was coming under fire for not having one black voter in like, you know, several decades as part of its um, face. And then, you know, a boycott and all of these things that were coming out of it. So then Amy and Tina have to acknowledge that mm -hmm. at post. So it's the same with the Academy Awards. But, but I think that, you know, we're seeing some progression. You know, people are asking me if it's still Oscar so white. And I'm like, I feel like it's more Oscar so progressive question mark. Like that's what it feels like to me. Like you, I'm not holding my breath but I'm just watching patiently. There are some really beautiful things that happened with this nomination list this year. And the reason why those things happened is because it was called to the attention of the world at this point now, the lack of diversity, both in gender and in racial, ethnic, religion. And so once more people that felt like a more inclusive, you know, kind of representation of this industry were invited, and that's why we're starting to see some of the changes. The fact that you have three Black men that are up for Best Supporting Actor, that has never happened before. You have a Muslim um, American man who is up for Best Actor. You have the first Asian American man up for Best Actor. You have two female directors up for Best Director. You have um, an all-Black production team up for Best Picture. Like These are things that have never happened before, but what we don't want to have happen is get complacent out of something that feels victorious in this year. And then next year comes around and it's like, Oh, okay. Now we're, now we're back to square one. Now we're back to best male director, you know, and then there's a problem again. So it's a wait and see, I think, but it's also let's build on the momentum that we're seeing right now, because it feels really good what we're seeing. Even, right. even the, the handicapped community is seeing some first, you know what I mean? But it's like, let's wait and see. Well, and the, what's clear is that the results come after the work, right? So you can't say these nominations are an immediate response to criticism so much as they are the gradual over the course of several years desire and intention to create different storytelling, to involve more different people in those stories. I mean, you look at Frances McDormand's talk of inclusion writers in her Oscar speech a couple years ago, and that's coming into the sports world. I'm talking to sports agents about their clients requesting inclusion riders for female athletes. And how do we make it so the people with power and leverage are affecting the distribution of staff, directors, actors, producers, everything on these mm -hmm. sets? And that that results in incredibly high quality productions featuring people of color, featuring more women, featuring better stories for those people that then can be nominated um, because it, because I think there's a frustration to those who um, would disingenuously say, well, they, they just decided to nominate a bunch of black people this year because people got mad. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And also, you know, you're seeing more inclusiveness behind the camera, which quite frankly is where the power actually is. I know we mm -hmm. tend to think of it being front facing town. It's not, you know, like Michael B. Jordan, for example, has this film coming out in, um, in April and the thing that stands out to me about this movie, it's it's an action film, but it's really like a love story. But the female presence in the film 
is unlike what we have seen before out of these films. You have like a high ranking, you know, military professional with the Navy SEALs who is a black woman with short natural hair. And then you have, you know, you, you, you know, you have a female secretary of state and these things feel like progress because they are, but it only happens because Michael B. Jordan produced that film mm -hmm. and Michael B. Jordan hired a woman to run his company. And so they had power at the table to say, this is what we're going to do with this film. And this is the representation that we want to see. This film is going to be a reflection of the world that we all actually live in, as opposed to a reflection of 12 men who all look the same and probably pledge the same fraternity mm -hmm. at the same Ivy League school. So that's what the difference is. You know, you're seeing people get power to make studio films and the studio films are a reflection, at least this year, of, of the world that we live in, which is why we're seeing some of these more diverse nominations coming down the pipeline. Let's talk about some of those nominations. Um, there are a couple of these movies that I have on the list before the 25th that I have to get to. One of them is is um, Mank. Is that how you pronounce it? Mank? Mm -hmm. So most mm -hmm. nominations of, of any movie, 10. Now, a cynic yeah. would say, of course, this is a movie about movies. And the yeah. Oscars love nothing more than movies about movies or movies about movie stars or movies Absolutely. about the business. Um, is this is this a movie worthy of, of topping the noms list? I mean, in my estimation, I have all subjective. Favorite. Yes, I, it's all subjective. I have another favorite. But yes, this is the kind of film and this isn't taking anything away from the filmmaker because the filmmaker is very beloved in this town too, David Fincher. But this is a film about Hollywood and Hollywood loves movies about itself. And it's not just a film about Hollywood. It's a film about the guy who wrote what is considered to be the best film of all time. And Hollywood loves that narcissistic, you know, kind of exploration of character in, in that way. And so that felt like a very natural nomination to see up there. Now, whether or not they take home many of those 10 nominations remains to be seen. I'm not sure. I think there are, there's so much room for them to be upset, but this is the kind of film that we're accustomed to seeing, yeah. you know, go up every year. Um, I was amazed that there were no makeup awards for Borat subsequent movie film. <laughs> I know that sounds absurd, but these people had to be out in the regular world and be believable enough that they weren't recognized, mostly just, mostly just Sasha Baron Cohen. The rest of the people in the movie aren't recognizable superstars, but he has to not be recognized and it has to be believable enough. And in all those different, you know, characters, I was kind of surprised by that. Do you think it just doesn't fit the vibe for the Oscars, even for a category like makeup and hair? No, not necessarily. I mean, it could be one of those things where the campaign just wasn't as loud as other campaigns happen to be. Um, that's usually what happens in a scenario like that. And also that particular category. So there are a lot of categories that normally would be filled with big tentpole films. And that's their best chance to like clean up, you know, like a movie like a Marvel type movie could be up for like a cinematography, you know, award and, and might get that award. But there were no tempo films, you know, in the last 12 months. There were no films that were released in theaters. So this year, all of the smaller art housey kind of films get to shine in in categories like like hair and makeup. Um, but again, I think people were really trying to figure out how to campaign this season for awards like that via Zoom. You know, there wasn't like a a costume design guild in person awards ceremony where you can bring out because no one knows you know what costume designers look like unless you're very very famous but they know what like Carrie Washington looks like and they know that her look on a show like Scandal was very revered and so she will come out and present an award to her costume designer and then that will get the the press and the attention and the chance to talk about those things but those things didn't exist this year so it's kind of a little bit of a crapshoot I think right yeah that, that checks out um, we just saw the BAFTAs. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense. It just makes it's like a little bit sad. Like I get that that's how it works. Just a yeah. little bit sad for something, especially something that's kind of like obvious but so different like that. Um, we just saw the BAFTAs happen. Um, there is actual overlap between some of the voters who vote for the the British Academy and the BAFTA Awards and the Oscars. So a lot of people look at them to see, you know, what the tell might be for the Oscars. Same goes for the Golden Globes. Um, are you looking at those awards this year and and getting any hints about what you think might happen at the Oscars? Um, 
Yes and no. I never normally look at the Golden Globes as a precursor to what the Oscars might look like. I do think that those voting bodies are drastically different. Um, and oftentimes they don't necessarily um, serve to tell us what's coming. But the SAG Awards usually is a pretty good mm-hmm. indicator because, you know, there's there's overlap there. But also it's it's actors voting for actors, too. So you get some idea if you're also an actor who has a vote in the Academy, because that's how the votes go. You vote for your category you kind of have a really good idea about who might walk away with a big win. But I think even, even now at this point, we still have some foregone conclusions about certain categories, who's going to win. It just hasn't, the needle hasn't moved, you know. Um, we still are pretty confident of at least two categories of winners uh, and what that's going to look like this year. Everything else might still be a little bit up in the air, but pretty good idea about who's going to win some of these awards. And you'll have to listen to Inside the Oscars, new episodes every Thursdays for her to reveal which of these categories they've got figured out. Um, I'm thinking one of them, I'm wondering if one of them is Chadwick Boseman winning. And uh, because you talk about it like a sort of campaign, how do you separate the emotional and very real life aspect of someone passing, especially so young, um, from this whatever unbiased approach you might wish you could have to these films? Yeah, you know, I I think generally speaking, that can be a challenge. But I think that if Chadwick were still here right now, Chadwick would be a strong contender for that category. He was going to be nominated for that category regardless. And I know that because I was planning on interviewing him um, for, for Ma Rainey's. I wanted to talk to him for the Five Bloods. But, you know, sometimes you have to make negotiations like, hey, we want to save this one talent for this this film that we really think is going to be a, a bigger conversation for this actor. And so that was one of the very early conversations I was having in 2020. And I knew when that happened that my expectation is that the thought was Chadwick was going to, right. you know, and then when I saw the first asset of um, of it, I was blown away. I was like, yes, this this is the film, you know, and, and this is what's going to happen. And it, it, it's so sad and painful and unfortunate, too, if I can say that, that he doesn't get to live here with us and experience this moment. But I think that him not being here doesn't necessarily add a few more points in his in his category of, of, of odds to win this award. I think if he wins this award, it's going to be because he earned winning that award, not because it's a, it's a courtesy. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, Yeah, there's a there's a ton of 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 great best pictures I haven't seen yet, but I did skip ahead uh, to my friend uh, Trayvon Free's short film, uh, Two Distant Strangers, um, which is out on Netflix. And that's an interesting thing, too. I think a lot of those um, shorter films or documentaries, even foreign films are more accessible to people than they normally would be Mm -hmm. this year. Do you think that that will affect it all the way the actual program is done? Will they anticipate more familiarity with more categories and respect them differently? Or do you think for the Academy that doesn't come into play when the presentation is made? I don't know if that necessarily comes into play, and but I also think that this year is just so unusual. Right. You know, um, like I was I was hosting an event for a studio uh, the other week, and it was really a roundup of all of their Academy Award nominees and just kind of a roundtable in a Zoom, and one of the questions that they asked me before, you know, we did it is I said, do you need, have you seen all the films? And I was like, yes. And I said, oh, no, no, there's one film I haven't seen that. If you can send that to me, that'd be great. And they were like, oh, you can, it's on Hulu. <laughs> there you go. You just watch it on Hulu. That has never happened in my, in my world. Usually by the time we get to the Academy Awards, 95%, I'm making that percentage up, but 95% of those movies are still in theaters. They're not even available, you know, at home yet. Mm-hmm. So, um, so this is a completely different experience. I mean, to be able, I could all of these films that are up for awards this year, you can literally just turn on your TV and watch. That has never happened before. Yeah, not not in a modern day era. Certainly, it's never happened before. You know, yeah, you've so never had it- that option. That might not affect the presentation of a variety of awards, but at the same time, to your point, it's such a weird year anyway that they're going to be taking all sorts of chances and presumably doing... uh, One thing I found interesting is that I'm usually someone who appreciates the 
respecting the situation and the seriousness of it. But I also found during the Grammys that I really appreciated that it wasn't maudlin. It was joyful. I was so excited the whole show. And in those moments where they went to independent theaters and had those folks introduce awards, it reminded us that those places had been shuttered and were struggling. It reminded us of the stories of music venues and and the love of live performance, um, but in a way that never really felt like it was being manipulative. And mm-hmm. I wonder whether you think the Oscars will at all look at the success of something like the Grammys, where it was a celebration and not too caught up in let's pay respects to to the situation at hand, um, or whether you think it's the Oscars and bitches they love drama, so they're gonna <laughs> they're gonna make it like. <laughs> I think it's gonna be a celebration because this is also going to be the first time that people are going to be around people. You know what I mean? Like you look at um, like some of the best picture nominees, those casts have only seen each other via Zoom for the last yeah, year. Yeah, that's true. They haven't seen each other since they left set, which in a normal world, they would have seen each other every day at lunches and teas and events at night and, you know, um, dinners with the, with the studio and so on and so forth. They've not seen each other since they called cut, you know, on this film in most cases. And so, and so this is going to be a night where people are going to literally be able to quite literally rub elbows with people they haven't <laughs> seen, because that's all people are probably going to be doing, you know, um, in, in a really long time. So I think that the producers are probably smartly understanding that and, and want to build off of that and make this really a celebration that we all need. Like we all need a celebration on television right now, you know? Well, and and that reminds me, and since you've been here before, you're not going to do the Spanish Inquisition. We're going to do a different kind of speed round. Um, And and it reminds me of some of the questions I wanted to ask you on that, because that is true. There's this joyful, I mean, this is so self-centered to say, and it's so silly, but like I had a very brief awards run after our More Than Mean PSA, where we got to go to the Gracies and uh, the Peabody Awards and the sports, you know, all the, you know, the, the, um, the uh, sports Clios and like all this stuff. And um, it was so fun every time to meet up with those people again and get dressed up and do all the stuff. And so I do imagine, especially after a pandemic, when everyone's been wearing sweatpants, that there will be a particular focus on the looks that we're giving and, you know, showing up and reminding people of the glamour of Hollywood and and that we can appreciate that. So that leads me to your favorite red carpet look on somebody else. Ooh, um, oh, that's a great question. Here I was thinking about be the person I'm wearing a bra in a long time. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, favorite red carpet look on someone else. I, you know what? I loved the dress that Lupita Nyong'o won, wore when she won her Oscar for 12 years. And if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was, I think it was Prada that year. I don't quite remember the designer, but it was beautiful and it was it was custom. I do know whether it was Prada, Gucci, whomever. It was a custom dress, and it was like this beautiful green that just kind of like a light green that just bounced off her skin. I thought that was mm-hmm. gorgeous, and I loved it. And that was because that was her introduction year. Eventually, people realized that she was killing it, like at every award show she went to, and so they had like this spectrum of dresses she wore. So I love that dress. I do remember her like bursting on the scene and everyone being like, Oh, fashion. She's like, she's right. Um, yeah, that's, that's Billy Porter uh, was a favorite for me because it was like a game changer, um, for him and for like the world. Um, what about you? Do you have a favorite red carpet look that you've worn? Um, yeah. Uh, at the Oscars specifically, the one that I wore last year, I loved, I did a custom, um, uh, blue color dress. I'm not that deep into fashion to tell you the specifics <laughs> of what blue it was, but my stylist worked with um, worked with a designer to make it happen, and I loved it. And um, and I thought it was a big hit. Like I thought it was so cool because she had identified early on that that was one of the colors of the season from yeah. um, from New York Fashion Week, and and it was. There were awesome. several several of us in the glitterati that had that <laughs> color blue on, and I felt very cool. So I love that piece. Do you wear take- this year? Gonna top it. Okay. Can you top give us it. a hint? Can you give us a hint? Um, it it might be a little might be a little sheer. Oh. Okay. 
And some All right. And so, yeah. Make sure it's the right areas, I would suggest. It's definitely the right areas. <laughs> um, do, think- <laughs> <laughs> do you think about like comfort and needing to be on the red carpet all day? Do you try to balance that? Or is it like, I'm just going to be uncomfortable for this one day and it's in the face, you know, in, in, in the name of fashion? I think about comfort. My stylist doesn't though, but I think about it all the time. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I hope she doesn't actually listen to this because what I do is I walk in with the heels that she makes me wear and I mm-hmm. take them off and put on my Tory Burch flip-flops. 100%. In fact, I did that at the, on TV. I did that at the ESPYs two years ago. And then we went to the, like, un, um, whatever, Le- I always forget the name of LeBron James company because uh, it's not undefeated. It's untitled, un. What the hell no, is it's, it? Um, it's, it's un. Is it undisputed? Undisputed. I think that might that be. Up? It might be. I can never remember. I always uninterrupted. That's uninterrupted. It. uninterrupted. Yeah, there you well, go. There was like an after party that uninterrupted was throwing, and they wouldn't let me in despite still having on my ESPYS like red carpet dress because of the flip flops. And uh, PK Subban had happened to walk by and like had to tell them to let me in the party in my flip flops, and I was like. This is this is discrimination and not fair. I don't have feet for heels. I don't have to wear them. Men don't go through this. Men don't go through this, and it's unfair. It's and I mean, we're talking doing three, four, and five hours of live TV and heels. That's never going to happen. Not from this girl. No, not from me. Every every SB red carpet, I have flip flops, and I have a purse that is big enough to hold flip-flops in it because otherwise I'm not going to make it. Um, Okay. So you've done all these interviews and whether this is red carpet or your show or anything else, who are you the most nervous for? Um, I'm the most nervous for Daniel Kaluuya. I mean, I'm pretty confident that he's going to win. Judas and the Black Messiah was my favorite film this season. Um, I loved it so, so much. But uh, it's such a stacked category now. And I I think it's natural to worry about a split vote, you know, but I think that he hands down gave the best male supporting actor performance of the season. So good. And I really want him to win. And I'm really nervous for him. And thusly, I'm nervous for myself because (laughs) I feel a part of this too. (laughs) You you want to nail the interview before he wins when they look back. What about like, who's someone that you've interviewed that most surprised you? Like maybe you weren't that excited or you thought you knew them and they were different. Um, That's up for an Oscar or just in any point. Mm, You know, um, one person that I had never interviewed before was Andra Day. So she's up for Billie Holiday. Um, And what I really love about her is that I thought that she gave a compelling performance in a film that not a lot of critics loved, but her performance was able to push past whatever people didn't love about the movie. But also she is very well educated about the role, because this film makes the case that Billie Holiday was the effective mother of the modern day civil rights movement. And she's really well educated about Billie Holiday's role, which not a lot of people knew. This is a lot this is new information for a lot of people, the story is. And she's just so um smart and sharp about tying what happened then to what's happening right now and that really caught me off guard because i didn't expect to get all of that from her but i but i love hearing her talk about it because i think she's really really smart about these things she was at our espnw summit a couple years ago as the carrie champion interview plus performance which we've had the last couple years a couple different ella may and cheryl crow and andre day so it's been very cool to see some of those people then um like in this case for instance go on to be nominated for an oscar pretty pretty awesome after we had a you know front row seat for for a concert for a couple hundred um (laughs) well i'm super excited for the show and now that you told me we've been told it will be something amazing now I'm really excited for what they're gonna what they're gonna do to make it special. Um, I have to figure out my plans now. I used to throw big Oscar parties and make silly names for all the food that related to all the films and make people dress up, but we're still in a pandemic, unfortunately. Yeah. So yeah. I might just have to make enough food for Aiden and then eat it all myself while my husband takes a nap, <laughs> just like the Super Bowl. Uh, <laughs> Kelly, good luck with the rest of the podcast. Good luck with the red carpet. I look forward to seeing the dress. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. So this is a place for me to rant or rave about things, to tell you to read something or watch something or do something. 
And this week, it's to watch the FX documentary Hysterical. It's a documentary about female comedians, but um, it's rawer and more honest and more current and more specific than really anything I've seen before on the topic and includes a really riveting segment on the up-and-coming female comic who took on Harvey Weinstein when he was in the room for a set of hers um, and shows the clips of, of men, you know, booing and telling her to shut up for addressing the rapist in the room and how she pressed on and how that influenced other comedians stuff with Kathy Griffin during her most recent, um, you know, issue and, and threats that she received for um, the photo she took with the Trump replica, um, all sorts of conversations about trauma and issues that have come in, up in, in the lives of and work of these women. Um, here's a little bit of a review that uh, I found on IndieWire from Kristen Lopez that I thought um, gives you a little idea of how it is. There have been several documentaries, both large and small, focused on the history of women in stand-up comedy. The short take is that, much like every other industry in the world, being a woman in a man's world sucks. But Andrea Blagrand Nevin's upcoming FX documentary, Hysterical, does something different. It really leans into that fact, not just by reminding us that, yes, women had a hard time breaking into the industry, but also how often men, even friends of the female comics themselves, didn't really see anything wrong with it. Nevin's documentary is a fierce, frustrating, and utterly amazing look at the strength of these women comics and how they weaponize their trauma to make us and themselves laugh through their tears. It's a really good watch. It's like an hour and a half maybe, um, but I highly recommend it. It's called Hysterical on FX. Don't forget, you can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you have guest suggestions, questions, or more. And go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, of course, if you want. I mean, you don't have to, but I would recommend that. Um, and give me a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's What She Said. That's What She Said.